Good morning. Today's scripture readings are taken from 1 John 2, verses 1 to 6. And this is also found on page 1183 in our Pew Bibles. My dear children, I write this to you that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. The second scripture reading is taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 to 7, found on page 1114. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy and it does not boast. It is not proud, it is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. May the Lord add his blessings to the reading of his word. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you open our minds and hearts as we hear your word from Pastor Mark. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Esther. Well, last week we spent most of our time and attention laying out the biblical Christian definition of love. And when we do that, we find that the biblical Christian definition of love is substantially different than any other definition or form of love that we might get elsewhere. In fact, it's, it's not hyperbolic to say, it's not too much to say, it's not beyond the pale to say that compared to all other forms or definitions of love, biblical Christian love is something altogether different. It's simply not the same thing. It's another thing altogether. We saw from the text of Holy Scripture that there are three aspects or qualities or traits that distinguish biblical Christian love, I should say at least, from all other forms of or, or definitions of love. First, among the many other things Biblical Christian love is above all things self-sacrificial. 
It does not seek its own interests. It is not self-serving or even self-preserving. John, in his first general letter in chapter 3, verse 16, we noted this last week, he says it this way, By this we know love, that he, meaning Jesus Christ, that he laid down his life for us. And if we put a period there, we'd be pretty comfortable, we'd be okay, well, that's true. That's basic, uh, fundamental Christian theology, but he puts a comma instead. So that it reads that he, Jesus Christ, laid down his life for us, comma, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers and sisters. Jesus himself said, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he, and I believe he was speaking of himself, there is some speculation here, but, but I believe he's speaking about himself, is, and that is that he lay down his life for his friends, you are my friends, he then says to them, if you do what I command you. So last week we noted that we don't become Jesus' friends by doing what he says, we do what he says because we are his friends already. And it's out of that relationship that we find ourselves obeying his word. But secondly, and far more daunting and distinguishing, the Bible tells us God is love. No other person, no other quality, no other trait, no other aspect can make this claim. Let's hear from 1 John again from, verse, from chapter 4. Verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, comma, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected. We could also translate that as completed in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And yet we also saw and we just heard that for love to take its full effect, it must be both given and received. It must be both initiated and completed. This is what perfected means here in this context. John goes on in chapter 4, verse 14 of his first general letter, to teach us both the quality and and most importantly the source of truly biblical Christian love. We are not the source of it. We can't do it. We don't know how. We don't have it in us. Verse 14, and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God 
is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and abides in him or her. By this is love perfected with us or completed in us so that we may have confidence on the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love, completed love, full love, casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected or completed in love. Verse 19, we love because he first loved us. We also noted last week, or we could say we applied this truth, God is love and all his ways are loving, So love is a fundamental and inevitable expression of his being. He cannot not love. It's not possible. God is love, and everything that issues out from him is a loving act, is something flowing out of his character, and he is love. And it's consistent with what we've believed for a while now here at Bethesda, which is our reason for human being. This is very important. Our reason for human being is to bear God's image and likeness, representing him on the earth in our place and time. So if God is love and we ought to love each other and others in the world as Jesus loved us, then this is a fundamental, essential aspect of our reason for being. Not just as Christians, mind you, as human beings. For we find all the way back in Genesis chapter 1, this fundamental purpose for our being. That we have been created to bear God's image and likeness and represent him on the earth in our place and time. So this is a pretty good place for us to take a pause and to highlight the central truths of our messages. First, I'd I'd simply like to reiterate our truth from last Sunday in in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 to 3, which was extending the love of God in Christ Jesus to all and in everything is the priority of Christian faith and life and ministry. Now, extending implies outreach. It implies an other's orientation. It implies action and going rather than waiting and staying. The love of God in Christ Jesus speaks of a certain transcendent quality that only can be accomplished by the presence and power of God in us, among us, and through us. And priority, this is the hardest one for us sometimes, priority implies a preference over other possible activities and outcomes. We choose deliberately this Love, for example, over that, numbers or money or some other value that we might have. So extending, we're extending the love of God in Christ Jesus, and we're making that extension in all things to all a priority in our ministry. That was last week. So this morning, as you saw there in your upper left-hand corner of your bulletin, we, we continue really in the same direction. It's, it sounds very much similar to last week's, and you'll see there in our central truth that it is changed just, just ever so slightly, but I think in, a, in an important way. So we'll look at this morning manifesting the love of God in Christ Jesus. 
Manifesting meaning make real, bring into reality. Manifesting the love of God in Christ Jesus to all and in everything is the distinctive of Christian faith, life, and ministry. I realize there should be a period at the end of that. I don't know how it got dropped, but uh, these are things that I notice and make me crazy. So that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Manifesting the love of God in Christ Jesus to all and in everything And this is the distinctive of Christian faith, life, and ministry. Now, above all other truths that we'll explore this morning, this means that we born-again disciples of Jesus, we adopted children of the living God, are becoming more and more like Jesus in his character and especially in his love than we started out being in this life, than we were when we became Christians, than we were last year. And we are also becoming more and more like Jesus this way by walking in the Christian life by the power of the Holy Spirit according to the word of God than through any other endeavor, religious or otherwise. We can't get this anywhere else. We won't be this anywhere else. We can't do this anywhere else or any way else, I should say. But before we get after it, we need to pray for wisdom, discernment, and the faith to believe and act on this truth from God's word. Let's, let's pray together for just a moment. Lord, thank you for this, your word. Thank you for giving us minds and hearts that are open to you. Thank you for giving us the ability to grow. The ability to believe, the ability to hope, the ability to give ourselves for the sake of others. As Jesus loved us, we can, by the power of the Holy Spirit, love others in such a way as well. Lord, thank you for what you have done on our behalf in Christ. And we pray that it will, in fact, make a difference not only in our lives, but in the lives of those with whom we come into contact. Each of us have people in our lives that no one else could reach for Christ. They wouldn't listen to anyone else like they listen to us. Help us, Lord. To speak your truth into their lives and to pray and to hope and to believe for them as well as for ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's, I think, probably no coincidence that this morning I I received uh, a notice, Facebook notice, from somebody that I follow. Trevin Wax is his name, if you know him. And he just noticed, noted that the Ecuador Five died for their faith 50 years ago today. If you don't know their story, these five, I think they all came from Wheaton, though I'm not sure about that, um, went to Ecuador to reach unreached peoples with the gospel, and they made it as far as the beach. And they were killed uh, by a tribe 
who were obviously antisocial and not open to the gospel or even meeting someone other than from their tribe. The postscript to the story, however, is that almost that entire tribe is today Christian because of the faith of those five to go. It didn't turn out well for them in the short term, but it certainly has turned out well for those that they went to reach for eternity. And so that's the kind of sacrificial love. And whether, they, whether, whether it happens in our own experience literally as it did for them, it should happen figuratively for us all that we should be willing and able to lay down our lives for the good of others. Following Jesus as he loved us, we love others. That wasn't scripted. I, I just I got that notice this morning and it's been heavy on my heart uh, since then. Well, last Sunday we, we also noted that chapter 13 is the second of three very important chapters in the book of 1 Corinthians. Chapters 12, 13, and 14. And these three chapters are on spiritual gifts, or perhaps even, and I'll explain myself in just a moment, but, but perhaps even spiritual people. And these three chapters on spiritual gifts or spiritual people are intended to be both instructive for us and corrective of that congregation to which it was initially sent, that is, the church at Corinth. And it seems to be answering the question, or, or at least a question that might sound something like this, how does the Holy Spirit manifest both his presence and his power in and among, perhaps even through, God's post-Pentecost people, that is, after the Holy Spirit has come? This seems to be the question he's answering. I'll, I'll say it one more time. How does the Holy Spirit manifest, become real, both his presence and his power in and among and even through God's post-Pentecost people? Now, it may be helpful for us to know that Paul, by the Holy Spirit, isn't merely writing willy-nilly about the topics of his choice to this most troubled and troublesome congregation in Corinth. Rather, he is responding to a series of questions posed to him by the Corinthians themselves, perhaps even from their church council, writing to him, hey, we've, we've run into these, these issues, not necessarily troubles, although they had enough of those, but, but we, we need some answers about this so that we can know how to proceed. And we know this because we read in chapter 7, verse 1, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, So most, most or, or, or perhaps all, or at least through chapter 14, but probably also 15 as well, which is on the resurrection, the truth of the resurrection, are in response to a letter or letters that they wrote to him asking for, for his apostolic instruction or correction. Verse 25 of chapter 7, now concerning the betrothed, chapter 8, verse 1, now concerning food offered to idols, then in chapters 9 through 11, Paul continues to reason biblically, theologically, and spiritually through these and other matters that either they've asked about or that have come to his attention 
and for which they need either instruction or correction or both. So in chapter 12, verse 1, we read again, now concerning the spiritual gifts your translation may have, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. Now that's also how my English Standard Version translates verse 1, and that's very close to how the NIV translates it as well. But I also, in, in the English Standard Version, have a note on the term gifts that our NIV Pew Bibles doesn't have that says, or spiritual persons. This means an alternate translation might be now concerning the spiritual persons or people, brothers and sisters. I do not want you to be uninformed. Now, the reason there's a question as to whether Paul, by the Holy Spirit, is speaking of either spiritual gifts or spiritual persons here is that neither gifts nor persons occur in the text. That's a filler that translators put in trying to help the reader to understand what is being taught here. And this is another one of those times I wish they wouldn't help. I wish they would just translate. Verse 1 actually reads, literally, now concerning the spirituals. It doesn't say spiritual gifts. It doesn't say spiritual persons. It says spirituals. Now concerning the spirituals, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. So Paul may be addressing, at least primarily, the use of spiritual gifts in the context of, the congreg of congregational life, or he may be addressing, at least primarily, the conduct of spiritual people in the conduct and context of their local church. Now, I will say this, linguistically, there's a bit higher probability that it is, in fact, gifts. And that's because the gender of the word spirituals is neuter. It's neither male nor female, which usually refers to inanimate subjects. Things, perhaps. And one would expect masculine gender for persons because a masculine plural in the Greek language applies to all male gatherings or, or groups and all mixed gatherings or groups. But I doubt it would surprise anybody when I tell you that I believe he's doing both. That he intentionally left out gifts or persons because he's writing concerning the spirituals. I believe he's doing both because he included chapter 13 with chapters 12 and 14 on each side of it. <laughs> I, I know that's not a profound insight. You would expect chapter 13 to be on one side of 12 and the other side of 14. That's not the insight though. The profound insight is this. Chapters 12 and 14 are primarily about the proper use of true spiritual gifts in the context of congregational life. Chapter 13, placed remarkably between 12 and 14, is about the conduct of truly spiritual people in the context of congregational life. So we have an introduction to gifts in 12. We have how do we conduct ourselves as spiritual persons in the church in 13, and then we have a connection of the two, how do spiritual people use spiritual gifts in chapter 14. 
Now we're getting ready for verses 4 through 7 of 1 Corinthians 13. And as we turn there, let's understand that there is one truth represented well, I think, by the central truth of our message for this morning. But several applications, in my, in my count, at least 15 applications in these four verses. No kidding. Now, I, I won't attempt to exposit all 15. You may be happy to find out. But here's the important thing. All of them are interpersonal. There are no vacuums here. It's not patience as an ideal virtue. It's patience with someone, even God. It's not love in some ideal, virtuous, value way. It's loving one another. It's loving God. It's loving those outside the church. So let's keep in mind as we read here that all of this is interpersonal. Now, what do I mean by interpersonal? I mean these four verses of 1 Corinthians 13 have to do with the way we church people, the way we spiritual people, supposedly, the way we born-againers, supposedly, relate to each other, and here's the rub, There's a comma, not a period, which is the way Jesus Christ is related to us. Character counts. Everywhere, of course, but especially in the church. And it's not my character or your character or the best we can do. It's the character of Jesus Christ that is to be manifested among God's people, the church. Anything less than that, we're still aspiring. And it's the way the Holy Spirit, and only the Holy Spirit, can empower, will empower, and does empower us to conduct ourselves in all things and toward all people, and not just the people we like, or understand, or prefer, all people. Pastor Yuri was right last Sunday when he backed up our our reading to the last verse of chapter 12. Well, moving to our text, I'd like to back up even further to verse 27 of chapter 12 and read through chapter 13 and verse 3 to highlight what I've been saying about chapters 12 and 14, dealing with using our gifts properly, and 13 with relating to each other properly. There in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, verse 27, now you... I'm going to pause here for a second. Most North Americans, whenever we encounter the word you, we hear me. This is not singular. This is all y'all. Us. It's not me, it's us. Now, you all are the body of Christ. And, here's, here's me and here's you, and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Now, verse 29 and following is very important because, let me just share a key understanding here. The answer that he's looking for 
is no to all of these questions. And the answer today, as it was then, is no to all of these questions. Now, you will run into people who say yes to all of these questions or yes to most of these questions, and that's not the biblical answer. Verse 29, are all apostles? No. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Do all work miracles? No. Do all possess gifts of healing? No. Do all speak with tongues? No. Do all interpret? No. But all of you earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. Verse 1, chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have no love, have not love, rather, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. We may be able to see how Paul, by the Holy Spirit, is leading us into a bit of a trap here. All things are done in an orderly way. Yes, we can see that for the common good. Yes, we can see that also. All members of the larger body. Yes, we can see that. It just said that and we agree. Yes, just as God intended, of course. But first, love one another. Oh, that's something I'm not sure I can do. At least not entirely. At least not everyone. And this is what comes before Paul's addressing the issue, demonstrating what is love, defining what is love in very clear ways, and I count 15 of them here. Finally, verses 4 through 7 of 1 Corinthians. Love is patient and kind. Two things, remember, all of these are interpersonal. They don't happen in a vacuum. Patience in a vacuum does nobody any good, either the one being patient or the one who's being patient for. And the issue isn't the patience. The issue is the love that motivates an individual to be patient with others. And hope, it's reciprocal, right? Because we all need patience. I need you to be patient with me, frankly, more than you, I need, you need me to be patient with you. Because, you ask my family, there's a lot of patience involved here. But nevertheless, the first thing Paul that comes out of his pen as he's writing by the Holy Spirit, when he's defining love, is patience and kindness. Both of them, mind you, are fruit of the Holy Spirit. 
that we read about in Galatians chapter 5. But here he, he puts a little bit of a different twist on it, that both of these are positive expressions of the love of Jesus Christ, because that's the standard. That's what we're talking about here in the New Testament. When we talk about love, we're not talking about love as a many splendid thing. We're, we're, we're talking about love that sent Jesus to the cross. That's the kind of love we are manifesting here. And when we are patient with each other, rather than short with each other, when we are kind to one another, rather than unkind to one another, these are expressions, if they are done by the Holy Spirit, now we can mask it, can't we? We can appear to be patient when under, underneath we're boiling with impatience. Where is she? What is she doing? Where, wh where is he? And why did he do that again? Haven't we talked about this before? We've, we've all had these conversations. If we're married. Love is patient and love is kind. You see, there's an other's orientation here with all of these that is radically interpersonal. Love is not patient for me. Love is me being patient for someone else. In fact, let's just be patient with each other all the time. How would that be? That'd be love. How about we be kind toward one another all the time? Let's just... Let's just make that, not a rule, we're not legalists here, but let's just make that the way we do business. We're patient and we're kind. You know what the Bible calls that? Love. What else? Love does not envy or boast. I, I, don't, I don't know that we have a problem with either of these. I don't know that we have a problem, especially with boasting. I think Canadians are famous for not boasting, but for underselling themselves and what they've done and who they are and where they're going and what they know. Uh, so boasting probably isn't our primary issue. And yet we need to understand that love is not either of these things. So this is a negative command. It says the first was do these two things, be patient and be kind, that's love. Here we have negative commands, don't do this and don't do that. Don't be envious and don't be boastful. Another place Paul says, if you boast, boast in the Lord. Boast for what he has done. And really what that means is proclaim, right? That's, that's proclaiming. That's not, that's not saying my Jesus is better than your Jesus or my God is better than your God. It's proclaiming what Christ has done. But we don't proclaim what we've done. We might share together our life stories for the purpose of getting to know each other or making a point or an illustration or something in a, in a message, although I don't do that very much, as you'll know, um, because I don't want to be boastful. But envying, now that's a different thing altogether. The older I get, the more I recognize in my own character the tendency to envy somebody else. I'm not saying I'm more envious today than I was when I was 20 or 25 or 30. I'm just saying I'm noticing it more. I think... I think there comes a point when, when maybe you have fewer things to be 
bothered by or concerned by. And so, so the things that are there become brighter. And we need to join Paul. I need to join Paul when he says, I have learned to become content with whatever. Contentness is the opposite of envy. And be comfortable with, be happy with, be unchanged by. Whether God has given me this and given somebody else that, we need to be happy and contented with what God has done in our lives. And oh, by the way, in addition to Christ, we should not want anything. Paul in another place said, with Christ we lack nothing. Love is not arrogant or rude. Again, I, I haven't seen a whole lot of arrogance around here. Um, it exists, I know, in the world. I have run into it a bit. I have been arrogant myself. Um, and rudeness is, is in short supply here also, I think. It happens. But when we are not arrogant, when we could be, when we are not rude, when we would be, here Paul by the Holy Spirit calls that love. So let's do that. Or not do that, as it turns out. Love does not insist on its own way. Now, this is a hard one for me. It's, it's really a hard one. I, I started growing up when I finally got that it's more important that we understand what the truth is than my position on the truth being proven right. Has anybody made that transition? Now, I'm not saying I'd, I, I'd like to be wrong. I don't. And I try to be right. I'm not always. But this is a hard thing, not insisting on one's way, especially when it's a way that seems right to us. Now, now I hear Proverbs talking to me here. Uh, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is death. Ooh, we don't want to be on that, on that way. And love does not insist on its own way. In fact, it defers to another. You know what the Bible calls that? Love. Love. It is not irritable or resentful. <laughs> now he's gone on to preaching, right? Um, I, don't, I don't know. Does this have a particular time of day in mind? In the morning, I'm really irritable. Um, resentful is another thing. Resentful means you hold on to what you think you deserve and won't give it up. And love does not do that. It doesn't respond in irritation. It doesn't resent. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. I haven't seen that a single time here at Bethesda or even in my time here in Winnipeg, I don't think. But it rejoices with the truth. Love rejoices with the truth. Now, that's not the same thing as rejoicing in my version of the truth. Love rejoices in the actual truth. What did Jesus say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. God's word is true. 
Beyond that, we have to be very careful in presuming that we know the truth and we're going to insist that our knowledge of the truth wins out. We have to be very, very careful with that. And then here's a statement that probably doesn't surprise us. We've heard it before. It's been in movies. It's been in songs and poems. And so we're probably pretty familiar with verse 7, which doesn't imply actual practice. Um, but it here says, love bears all things. Really what that means is when we are bearing all things for other people, we are being loving. We are, we are following the way of Christ. Love believes all things. This doesn't mean self-contradictory things. This doesn't mean that we believe the opposite of what science tells us. It doesn't mean that we believe yes and no is the right answer to every question. This isn't being mealy-mouthed or soft. This is, this, is, this is believing all true things, all things that lead to life. We believe. We believe in people around us even when they fail. We encourage them. We're with them. We don't leave them. We have their back, so to speak, is a, is a popular way of putting it these days. Love hopes all things. Uh, again, same, same caveat. This doesn't mean we, we hope all things from, a, from a, an objective reality. We're, we're hoping all things good, all things right, all things true. We're hoping good things for each other and endures all things. We don't become resentful, rude, arrogant, irritable when we don't get our way. Yet we endure all things. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. Love is not arrogant or rude. Love does not insist on its own way. Love is not irritable or resentful. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. One final statement. If we're not these things at any particular moment does not mean that we're not Christians. And don't let anybody tell you that. And there are people who, if they see a mistake or if they see something that you do wrong, and they'll say, oh, pfft, you're one of those. We all fall short of this standard of Christ. It's why he had to come. It's why he's praying for us right now before the Father. And it's why we look forward to growth that happens as the Holy Spirit applies God's word to our hearts and our minds and our lives and our ministries. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, and we are looking ahead in faith, hope, and love. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we thank you once again for your word. We thank you for the promise of the Holy Spirit that gives us insight and gives us understanding and gives us the ability to, to live these impossible Christian lives with some modicum of integrity and truth and realness. And I pray that we will push forward into the new year in faith, in hope, and most of all, 
in love. Love for you, love for each other, and love for the world for whom Christ died. In Jesus' name, amen. I wanted us to hear the words of Jesus as we leave here this morning from verse 12 and following. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. It keeps, you know, that comma is killing me. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide or or remain so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this, your word. Help us to do this, not to aspire to it, but to actually love each other to love our families, our spouses, our children, our grandchildren, our neighbors, our friends, our co-workers. Lord, help us to love as you have loved us and see what you will do. In Jesus' name, amen. See you next time.